0: Look at me. Hey, this is the DM Discourse, a podcast about D&D focused on the experience at the table from behind the screen. I'm your host, Daryl, and today I'm picking up where I left off with the party in the halls under the hill, but we will be focusing on a different faction in my game world and analyze how I foreshadowed their goals inevitably clashing with the parties. There are no gods worthy of our praise No outsider entities watching over us from secluded places beyond our ken Whose actions earn them gratitude from our lips Look to the chapels of men, the groves of elves, and the halls of dwarves What do you see? legions of hollow, droning fools, singing hymns to deities whose history and actions have never shown them true favor or benevolence. The gods are real, make no mistake, but their divinity does not make them better than you or me. Once in ages past, we were as they. There were powers we worshipped with fire in our hearts for the favor they granted us. Boons for battle we were given, tools to defend our families and tribes from the endless conquests of unsatisfied would-be emperors, for the gods of other folk rebuked us and led them to think they could conquer as they please, to take as their whims demanded. Ask yourself, what god could make such demand or breed such desires in their followers? False idols. Broken icons. The power they wield is used only to further their own selfish ambitions, for even they bicker amongst themselves the best way to use mortals to further their own goals. Our gods proved no better. Eventually, when we were found lacking, we were cast aside all the same and left to fend for ourselves in the harsh wilds that we could make some semblance of home for our people. The pantheon of the Melwa did not aid them when called upon. For our hubris of trusting gods, we have lost our culture, our identity. No greater a price could have been paid, and no reward worth its trade. Hark! Beware their priests and robe garments of tempters. Their missionaries will bring us words of empty promise and prosper off our kin's foolishness. Do not turn them away by violence, though your heart may call you to do so. Seek to enlighten them to their futility and pointlessness of their path. Should their minds be closed, turn them back to whence they came. Their justice and gods are self-serving. Their way is set to fade against time and its irreverence. On the ethos of Melwa religion. Mm. Alright, so, uh, confession time. I never cared much for hobgoblins. When it comes down to the classic evil races of D&D orcs and goblins always stood out more as picks to throw at adventurers to me. Even kobolds, given their relationship to dragons, was more appealing when compared to bugbears and hobgoblins. But after a few years of running the game and learning more about them, I thought it would be neat to make hobgoblins a core race in my setting. The players didn't know this coming in, which gave me the opportunity to subvert their expectations, much in the same way the campaign starting with a boat raid by sea elf raiders did. But whereas the sea elves were effectively replacing drow to be a more thematic tie-in to my surprisingly aquatic-centric setting, I wanted hobgoblins to serve as a parallel to the dominant races of the Uh, continent—humans, dwarves, and so forth, the typical ones that you have in the player's handbook at the front. Dragonborn were usurped by humans at some point in history, tieflings I had reskinned to originate from primordials slash giants more than outsiders— um, but for these red-colored goblinoids, they could be antithetical to the culture of both the players and surrounding rulers in the universe. I could add a depth to them past just being another monster race to be killed for XP. It's been a hot-button topic lately about the language that is used regarding these traditionally evil races of d Um, That's not something I want to get into here, you can do a quick internet search if you want to see WotC's official take and replies on social media, but I think it does raise a good point. For decades, these iconic members of the shared fantasy monolith have been described in Dungeons & Dragons as inherently amoral in societies and cultures that encourage their behavior. The god of orcs, Grumsh, is a savage god of raiding and conquest, and the Dark Elves venerate a uh, sociopathic betraying spider lady. So, sure, the argument can be made that these people focus their civilization on t- vile traditions, but I think it's inherently reductive to limit the scope of an entire people to a few basic concepts of morality. Um, so don't. You can take what you think is cool and put that in your world, and if you want to redefine aspects of or the entirety of established tropes in the hobby, I want to encourage you to do that. That's what I did for Hobgoblins, not because I wanted to be a high-minded moralist in my ivory tower while playing with my friends. I just thought it would be neat. I thought my friends would like it. I wanted to see what fun we could have by giving these long-standing enemies of the traditional races a little more to work with. So I made them the Melwa, no longer just some variation of Goblinoid, but a genuine race with their own ties to the history and landscape and stories that they tell alongside their campfires about betrayals by those they once called kin and others they once worshipped as gods. Whether folk believed the change in their physical appearance to be some form of magic or some evolutionary distinguishment, that answer isn't concrete. Um, what is concrete is that they are struggling to survive in a world that views them as monsters because that is what they are told the Melwah are, the Hobgoblins, uh, which at this point uh, has turned into a slur against them, um, to see that they are essentially hobbled being in the company of goblins. And that's the group of people that the players went to meet after they had finished exploring the Accursed Halls. Last time, they made one loop from the lower part of the dungeon that led back to the central chamber along the upper balcony, and this week they went through its mirror. First on the list was a crumbling passage they passed through, which I just had the party make dexterity saves against in order to pass. Um, a lot harder to avoid than the pitfall trap from last week's first room, which, if you don't recall, the Vestrin, uh Batfolk player character just flew over. <laughs> um The next room combined the tricky terrain uh, with a combat encounter. Sturges, which are these um, flying wasp bat things, uh, some Sturges attacked them in a small cave room while they had to jump in between some stable pillars. It wasn't the most challenging encounter they had. In fact, they continued to steamroll through the rest of the dungeon from here on out, but it combined the two facets of encounter types into one. So now they knew they could get into scraps while also having to navigate tricky areas. Again, I'm still going without a grid, but we just kept mental track of where each person was on an overall map we shared, just without individual little pieces. Um, Of course, one player, the Vestrin again, uh, just flew across easily. Um, Again, me learning to keep track of flying player characters in mind for the future. Um, And as from a previous episode you learned, I had to deal with two of them for a good amount of time. As they proceeded, the trio of original party members uh, encountered more goblins, three specifically playing a game of dice while waiting for their leader up above for the next orders. It's always nice to throw in some flavor for what the monsters could be doing to give them some context other than just, you know, standing around waiting for the people with the camera behind their head to show up because that's not really what they're doing. They have other things they want to do. Um, and these goblins wanted to roll some bones. Roll roll damn bones. <clears throat> Uh, but because they were doing that, it made it easy for the party to get the jump on them. Um, three very impatient adventurers who had had enough of goblin shenanigans at this point. Uh, however, this time they ended up letting these surprised goblins go, as you probably suspect. This cause uh, this does come back to haunt them in the not so distant future. The group of goblins in the last incomplete chamber upstairs uh, were less lucky. Here, the goblin boss Mergmo. Uh, she was investigating the ruins of something important for their tribe's leader, the war priest, Mido. The party did get into combat with this group and interrogated Mergmo, um, but didn't end up letting her live. The cleric killed her, character, uh, killed her during the interrogation process, but I think this had more to do with the veteran player trying to get a reaction or inspire action from the other players. This goes back to them traveling to Fen's Keep on the boat where they didn't stop the cleric from shooing off the Kenku that were trying to warn them of impeding danger. Uh, to be honest, I don't think the other party members expected this from the cleric either, uh, but we're more or less fine with how it turned out. It ended up start, uh, establishing a trend about the more harsh and, uh, I guess, naive approach that the cleric would uh Enforce their faith, I guess is a way that you could, uh, is a way of putting it. The next room they went through had a phantasmal chill trap on it, but all the party members ended up seeing their saves, so just found some violet stones that could be used for the puzzle door in the entryway. After this, however, was the objective of Mergmo and her group of goblins, an abandoned temple to some goblinoid god, long forgotten. In the room, the party fought two fungal crawlers, which ended up being tougher than expected, But since this was the final room of the dungeon, I think it turned out fine to be a secondary boss fight. They found a goblin blade amidst the ruins, which was just a plus one short sword, but being the objective of the goblins, this was still important to the Melwa as a piece of their heritage. After deliberating and uh, giving it some thought, the players ended up deciding to go visit the Melwa tribe in town and gauge their reaction to turning the blade into them. They weren't friends with the goblins, or the Melwa at that point, uh, but didn't see themselves as aggressors. So if giving this item to the tribal leader was an opportunity to curry favor, they were going to go for it. They could use a few guaranteed friends in this part of the world. Of course, as I've been talking about uh, in the intro and their backstory, the Melwa were never going to truly be friends with the party. It was a bit of a struggle to get there in the first place. The goblins, they let go, freed Brog, and attempted to commandeer the party's ship. The cleric knocked off one of their heads to dismay any further attempts at that. But once they reached the Briar Warren back in the town proper, a thicket of bramble that the tribe had carved their home into, they discovered a truly different culture than that from the town. The head of the tribe and its cleric, War Chief Mido, welcomed the group to his home, comfortable in his domain, and when they presented to him the sword, he surprised them by being amical and curt. To Mito, the history revealed by the sword was disappointing, Uh, similar to the performance of the goblins he had sent down to the Accursed Halls in the first place. But he was grateful that the party had the decency to come meet him face to face. It's not often that Melwa get such courtesies given to them, let alone from adventuring parties roaming about the area. He ended up letting them keep the sword and warned them of things to come at the hands of his own tribe, Wogar's Brood. The party had been paying attention up to this point, so this surprised them immediately, that hobgoblins would have a priest, for they had embraced a non-religious lifestyle by and large. Yet here was a zealot, a central NPC to be sure, set to challenge them further down the road because at his heart, Mito has one purpose, to see the rise of his people, a triumph they have been deserving for countless centuries, yet never filled. For this, he has turned to the gods once more, have so long tossed aside by his people just as they were so long ago. He seeks answers where others do not, and will do whatever it takes to see his goals fulfilled. That is what I presented to the players for the Hobgoblins, or Melwa in my setting, a civilized and historic people tied to the setting as much as the other races, caught in complications in order to survive. Here was one, defying the traditions of his kind as well, hoping to lead his folk to glory. I don't think the party believed it or knew it at the time, but there was certainly no way that whatever they tried, with this being of singular purpose, ever truly be their ally. (laughs) And uh, that might be the only lesson I have to look back on for this session, but I think it's a good one. You can defy convention to add surprising depth to the characters of your setting. I've tried to make my hobgoblins not follow the typical mold, but they still are primed to serve as potential antagonists for the party. And they do, further down the road. They wish to believe that Mito and uh them could aid one another, but for the war priest, there's only a justice that his people are due. Thanks for listening, as always. It means a lot to know that people out there are genuinely interested in the story I have going on. Feel free to leave feedback or comments um, or whatever else on the platform you're listening on or shoot me an email at dmdiscoursepodcast at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on Twitter at DMDCpodcast. Take care and have a great week.